Understanding China has become more difficult than ever, yet also more important than ever. Whether the U.S. and China are rivals, partners, or a mix of both, effective policy will only be as good as the information on which it is based. My name is Scott Kennedy, and I'm the senior advisor and trustee chair in Chinese business and economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I also have had the privilege of being one of the few American scholars who has traveled back and forth between Washington and Beijing in recent years. I'm a firm believer that field research, direct observation, talking, and listening to Chinese perspectives must be a part of our toolkit to understand the People's Republic of China. So join me as I speak with Chinese leaders from business, government, and academia, and foreigners who have spent many years living and working in China. What makes China tick? Where is the country going? What connects us? And what divides us? We'll dive into all of that and more on this podcast. Welcome to China Field Notes. Hello, everybody. This is Scott Kennedy. I'm the trustee chair in Chinese business and economics at CSIS, and I'm delighted to host another podcast of China Field Notes. Today, we are really honored to be joined by a leader of Hong Kong in many, many ways, Regina Ip. I'm going to give her a proper introduction in just a minute, but let me set the scene before I do so. Folks who follow international affairs know Hong Kong has gone undergone a lot of changes. It was originally a British colony, uh, reverted to Chinese sovereignty in 1997, uh, was promised 50 years of autonomy, of high degree of autonomy as a part of the one country, two systems plan implemented by the PRC. And that caused a great deal of controversy within Hong Kong and internationally. If you're not a regular follower of Hong Kong, you still probably were aware of of protests in 2019. And then in 2020, the implementation of the national security law, followed by 2021, of trials of some of those who were arrested in connection with the protests, either on the streets or or elsewhere. But as a consequence of that, Washington implemented a variety of sanctions, including against 11 current and former officials from Hong Kong. But since 2021, Hong Kong has essentially been off the radar of Washington, D.C. But it's going to be back on the radar this year, in part because The United States is hosting uh, APEC this year, and in a few weeks, the U.S. and San Francisco will host the APEC leaders meeting. And by tradition, all of the leaders of APEC's members would attend, and that would include Hong Kong's chief executive, who is now John Lee. But John Lee is one of those who's been sanctioned, and his attendance is, is unclear. And I think regardless of exactly what happens with that, Hong Kong will get more attention in the in the coming weeks. Now, I recently traveled to Hong Kong with my colleague Jude Blanchett to take a look at at what's happened over the last few years, and we'll be writing a report on that. What we found is that there are multiple perspectives in Hong Kong on all different kinds of issues, and we found the clearest conservative voice that we met was that of Regina Ip. And so I am delighted that we have her with us here today. Let me give you a biography of of Regina. She is the chair of the New People's Party. She's a legislative council member or LegCo member representing Hong Kong Island West, that constituency. She's also convener 
of the non-official members of the executive council and chair of the board of governors of the Savantist Policy Institute. She has a, a, a long background in Hong Kong government service from 1975 to 2003. She served in different positions in the Hong Kong government from 1998 to 2003. She was secretary for security. Following that, she went back to school, literally uh, studied at Stanford, uh, two master's degrees there. Uh, she then uh, was elected to LegCo in 2008 for the first time, and she's been elected repeatedly in every LegCo election since. And, and as I mentioned, she, in 2011, founded the New People's Party. She is just one of the most important voices in Hong Kong on all issues related to what's happening within the island, its relationship with the rest of the PRC, and with the world. Ms. Ip, thank you so much for being with us for this conversation. It's my pleasure. Nice to catch up with you again. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Well, if you don't mind, I just want to dive right in first. And I guess the first question is, you've been in public service for so long. And I just, if we could just go back to your early years about how you became interested in public service, working in the government, and then also with national security issues, which has become a central focus of yours. Well, I was studying in uh, Scotland when I found coming to the end of my master program and I found that I needed a job. And then my alum advised me to apply for an administrative officer job in the Hong Kong government. The administrative grade is a common grade that the Brits have introduced in all their colonies. You know. It pays well. It's supposed to provide fast-track promotion if you are good. So I did the, I took the exams and did the interviewing in London, 1975, and got recruited and got a free passage back to Hong Kong. My family was uh, very happy. I found I have a passion for public service. I'm not very good at numbers, you know, I don't think I will ever do well in a, in a for-profit enterprise because I'm not good at dollars and cents, you know. So ever since then, because of my passion for Hong Kong, for serving the people, I remain in the public sector, whether in government, civil society, or political society. In two more years' time, I will mark 50 years of my public service. That's amazing, amazing period of history in which you have served. I bet you, actually, you'd probably be pretty darn good in business, even if it's not, because I don't think it's all about the math and dollars and cents, but you are quite an entrepreneur in a whole variety of, of ways. That is to say, you're a leader in a whole variety of ways. My think tanks and my parties, they were like startups, you know. It's just like uh, all along the, um, my career, when I'm in different situations, I like to do something that create value. Well, that's why I, th I think we are actually in, in agreement there. As I mentioned in the in the opening, there are there's been attention to Hong Kong from the United States and elsewhere around the world. We've not been p focused heavily on Hong Kong lately. What's your assessment of the trajectory of Hong Kong since 2019 and 2020? Uh, to today, what's the evolution that you think the sort of the largest lessons that people outside Hong Kong should be taking away? In 2019, we were in global headlines because of the unprecedented riots, you know, 
which were held in the U.S. as a fight for democracy. Then we got into the headlines because in 2020, Beijing enacted a national security law for us, and that stopped the riots. And then I think we, after all the uh, sanctions, you know, the political noises from Washington, interest in Hong Kong died down, you know. Of course, there have been interest in certain trials going on. From chatting with all my interlocutors, whether from the US or from the EU, of course, uh, the focus is on when we're going to enact local legislation to implement Article 23 and how we are going to do it. Because when our chief executive delivered his second policy address two days ago, he confirmed that he will complete legislation on Article 23 of the Basic Law by end of next year. And that stirs some itch. I think we will be back in the headline. And of course, whether John Lee going is going to APEC would create some stories. I want to ask a little bit about national security law and also want to get your take on the economy as well. As you mentioned, you know, in 2020, there was this new national security law that was issued from the Standing Committee of the NPC uh, that covered four areas that would be their area of focus to mandate, including subversion, which is a, a charge that some of these protesters have been it with. So why does Hong Kong still need through Article 23 to enact another national security law? Isn't the 2020 law sufficient to cover all the potential ways in which Hong Kong's national security could be undermined? Article 23 requires us to enact local legislation to prohibit seven national security offenses. Some of the offenses are already on our statute books. We inherited them from the British. Everybody has it, like treason, like protection of official secrets, even spying. Everybody has it. All Commonwealth countries and territories, your country, everybody has it. But we we don't have the offense of subversion and secession. And Beijing's national security law filled those two gaps. And they introduced two offenses in response to the violence in 2019. And that's local terrorist activities and colluding with foreign governments and external elements. You know, That's in response to Hong Kong activists going to Washington, going to Europe, lobbying against China, lobbying for sanctions on China and Hong Kong and all that. But we still have our work to do to update very outdated legislation on treason, on uh, protection of state official information, and how to define state secrets and all that. So we still have much work to do. One of the big concerns about protests was the effect on the economy. It's now been three years, four years since the protests. I didn't sense a lot of optimism about the economy when I was there, certainly even without protests. What is your reading of Hong Kong's economy right now and its potential? The um, protest impact on the economy was relatively short-lived compared to our three-year isolation because of the pandemic. We only removed our mask mandate first March, so we lost a lot of business to our neighboring cities. So we are in a catch-up mode. 
And of course, our economy is affected by global trends like high interest rates. The slowdown of China's economy, slowdown of Germany's economy, and a lot of geopolitical disputes happening around us. So, but we are trying very hard to boost our economy through not only boosting tourism, but also using infrastructure to drive development of our economy, as well as working with the Greater Bay Area, that is the nine leading cities in the Pearl River Delta, to jumpstart our technology development. So uh, one thing I want to ask is because this is actually for folks outside Hong Kong, they would really not be aware. It's a, this is election season and campaign season in Hong Kong. And you're joining us, taking some time off of the campaign trail because we've got district elections. And just, just to give people a little bit of, of background on this, in 2021, there were reforms to Hong Kong's election rules uh, of two sorts. One was affecting, constricting the eligibility of those who could run for elections based on whether I, I'm not sure if the correct word is patriots or not, but something sort of, you know, those that committed to Hong Kong being a part of the PRC under its sovereignty. But then there were sort of formal changes with the legislative council or LegCo and, and the number of seats it had, and then changes with, the, with district level as well. If I recall correctly, and again, I'm, I'm not the world's leading expert on Hong Kong, that I would see that to you. I know in 2019, the last time that there were district elections, which had unbelievable turnout in terms of number of people voting and number of candidates, that in that contest, your party, I don't think won any seats, but you're now, I don't know if, if I'm correct, this is the first election afterward. And so now your party is seeking to regain seats in, in district councils, but without the, the kind of opposition uh, alternatives that were there in 2019. Is that a fair description of changes in Hong Kong's election laws and the environment that you're facing this campaign season? In the elections in 2019, they were not normal elections. There was a lot of violence. Some of our officers were set on fire several times. And uh, one candidate was stabbed. And uh, a lot of our volunteers and supporters were frightened away. In my opinion, those elections should not be held in such a um, fraught situation. And some of the candidates elected mostly young people. Several of them are now involved in criminal offenses, including defrauding old ladies. Now, what we have done with our political reform, both at the legislative council level and at the district council level, honestly, is to reduce the electoral element. I know that may not sit well with an electoral democracy like the US or the UK, but you are a very mature democracy. And you have some of your problems too. In our case, our experiment with electoral democracy has not gone well. Our legislature became more and more violence-filled and chaotic and obstructive and blocked government development. So Beijing decided to restructure our system so that there is a greater participation by functional members, that is professionals, representing different constituencies at the 
legislative council level and at the district level by people more familiar with the district to to make things short, you know, to give you a shorter story. The current district council, we are talking about 44 constituencies, geographical constituencies throughout Hong Kong, which means everyone will have a chance to vote. Now, the constituencies have become much larger, which I have always advocated. In Under the old system, a constituency will, on average, have a population of about 17,000, 17K residents, which means you can get a seat if you could control, you know, you can control the owners, residents, or one or two multi-story buildings. So we keep developing, grooming, District councillors who argue for a bus stop or MTR station on my doorstep. It doesn't have to broaden their vision. Now the new constituencies will be eight or ten times bigger. They will have much larger constituencies than an MP in the UK. And that will be very challenging. In the way we are grooming young people for future elections in the Legislative Council, so in the 44 constituencies, there will be 88 seats. Now, all my candidates are facing very stiff competition. In every constituency, there will be at least three to four candidates. And to make sure that is representation of different sectors of our community, I am fielding an Indian, Hong Kong born and bred Indian candidate, Cantonese speaking, in uh, Yao Qinmong constituency, where he will face a Pakistani representative along with other locals. So the competition will be very keen. Some of my candidates in some conservative constituency, one of them is already facing some harassment because of my support for the gay games, which will be hosted in early November. You know, my party is being accused of supporting same-sex marriage, you know, eroding traditional family values and all that. So I've advised my candidates, if people harass you, you need to ask your campaign staff to do a video, and then we need to clarify online what we really believe in and what we stand for. Let me see if I could turn back the clock just a little bit. I know that we can't relive history, but taking lessons from history might help us figure out what to do going forward. Yeah. If we look back at 2019 or even earlier to 2014 in Occupy Central umbrella movement and then the national security law and, and the level of tension that, that rose and then how it was handled, is there anything that maybe could have been done differently, either from the side of those in government in Hong Kong or Beijing or amongst those seeking universal suffrage and implementation of what they considered to be commitments under the Joint Declaration or the Hong Kong's basic law? Or was Hong Kong destined to come to that intersection in a way that was that maximized high conflict? Yeah, that's a very good question. Now, the bill, the Fugitive Offenders Bill, it's its official name, was introduced into LegCo in around February. And then Process started to emerge very soon. Actually, the first group of people to oppose the bill were the tycoons because they were worried about getting sent to the mainland 
if they were charged with evading tax, that sort of thing, because of their business on the mainland. So Mrs. Lab narrowed down the ambit of uh, the bill. The government can't be accused of being non-responsive. She narrowed down the ambit of the bill substantially. And in June, the protests started to snowball into very large street protests. Large street protests, up to millions, started to occur on the, the weekend of 9 to 10 June. And on 12 June, we were debarred from, because of the crowds, debarred from entering LegCo to do resumption of second reading, you know, get on with the legislative process. And on 14 of June, two days later, Mrs. Lamb already announced she will halt the legislative process. Hmm? So I don't think the government can be accused of being non-responsive. But what the protesters kept pressing were five key demands, not one less, including withdraw, complete withdrawal of the bill, which Mrs. Lamb did in, on 14 September. The bill was withdrawn. The bill I championed on national security in 2003 was never withdrawn, but the crowds went home quietly, peacefully, as soon as um, Mr. Sik Chung said he would not get on with the legislative process. Now, on, in September, Mrs. Lam withdrew the bill, but the protests kept going on, kept becoming more and more violent. They laid siege to two university campuses. And they lay siege to police stations. They threw firebombs at police family headquarters. They lay siege to the airport. They tried to paralyze the airports and other critical infrastructure. And let's look at their five key demands. We accepted one. We withdrew the bill, which is within our gift. But if you want universal suffrage tomorrow, it's out of our competence because you'll need two-third majority in the legislature and agreement by Beijing. And if you want amnesty of all those who were involved in criminal offenses during the riots, that's out of the question. If we grant a blanket amnesty, that will lead to a breakdown of law and order. So it's been very tough. So we had no choice but to carry on. And they made a technical mistake of occupying Polytechnic University. Earlier on, the tactics of the rioters was be water. They were everywhere. Hard for the our middle-aged policemen to chase them. Then they occupied Polytechnic University and we caught many of them. That was one of the turning points of our months-long battle. A very contested period of history and having watched it from afar and also in 2014, actually being there for a little bit, being able to, to watch societies that are going through such change, the lack of consensus, I tend to myself usually be an advocate for gradual reform, but also looking at the, the inability of people to talk to each other in ways that showed that they understood the most important concerns of the other. I think that tension is really difficult to resolve in the best of circumstances, even when you have a quote-unquote mature democracy or, and, and certainly when one, one is younger. I was just, you know, 
One of the big reasons that we went to Hong Kong recently, and I'm sure it's a reason why a lot of the world pays attention, it has to do with the question of one country, two systems, and the question of whether or not Hong Kong has been able to maintain a high degree of autonomy. I think most outsiders, at least in the United States, would would say, well, that commitment was basically lost in 2020. I'd be curious where you see resilience of one country, two systems. Uh, and second, if I could ask, what's off limits for Beijing to do in terms of encroaching on autonomy, that if those things occurred, then you would believe that there's no longer a high degree of autonomy? Would it be the extension of the Great Firewall into Hong Kong? Would it be the expansion of Communist Party organizations at the grassroots level? Are there other things which you would say, you know, that goes far beyond what is promised and we're in, a, we're in very different territory? I think Beijing has been very careful in safeguarding our separate systems while ensuring there is acceptance of their sovereignty. For example, under Annex 3 to the Basic Law of Hong Kong, Beijing can add the national laws to Annex 3 and apply them to Hong Kong, either by direct promulgation or through local legislation. Now, they have not applied to Hong Kong their anti-foreign sanctions law, their own national security law, or their counter-espionage law, or their national secrets law, which are recently amended. They've been very careful to do that, or their internet safety law, because they know we need freedom of information. In fact, the uh, controversial national security law, which they enacted for Hong Kong back in 2020, they did it in accordance with common law principles. Up front, they say there will be presumption of uh, innocence. All the common law principles of open, fair, and transparent trial will continue to apply. And in Hong Kong, why are we still in WTO? We, we are the founding members of WTO. We were in WTO before China, Macau, and Taiwan because we are a free market economy. We have always been a poster child of free market economy. When WTO members slap anti-dumping proceedings on us, we are treated as a market economy. China is not treated as a market economy. And we were invited to join APEC, again, because we were very vibrant, emerging free market economy of Asia in the 1990s. Of course, that's the time when people were writing about Asia rising. There is still a, a discussion about whether Asia is rising or falling. I think Asia is definitely rising. They are all registering higher growth rates and are sorting out their various problems through various multilateral organizations. We believe in free trade. We believe in open markets. We believe in multilateral systems. And we are members, separate member of WHO, WCO, World Customs Organizations, World Intellectual Properties Organization, because we not only have world-class legislation, say, to protect IPR, we also have very strict enforcement. I think our law enforcement people still cooperating with yours. 
on many issues. Nuclear non-proliferation, implementation of UN sanctions. So Hong Kong has a separate system and we have internet freedom. So just to follow up and I'll come back to the, the international side of things. So in your mind, if Beijing extended application of those laws that you listed to Hong Kong, that would be acceptable under the one country, two systems formula? Or would you find that they had gone over the line with, with those things? I was just trying to figure out where the boundary between one country, one system and one country, two systems is in your mind. I think Beijing takes a lot of advice from Hong Kong before they apply any of their laws to Hong Kong. You know, we have 36 Hong Kong deputies to the National People's Congress. And we have over 100 members of the CPPCC, Chinese People Political Consultative Conference, uh, which are supposed to give advice, you know. For example, the anti-foreign sanctions law was put on the agenda of NPC for application to Hong Kong, but was pulled out. I'm not privy to the discussions, but I think it was pulled out of the agenda for application to Hong Kong on our advice. One country, two system is a two-way street. We need to keep talking to each other. We need to fulfill our obligations to our country. We also need to give advice how to maintain the, the vibrance and separate systems of Hong Kong, and we will continue to do that. Also, I should remind you that our judiciary, our judges, our courts have been making rulings, continue to make rulings against the government, even in national security cases. There is one case concerning RTHK reporter doing investigative journalism because of a riot during 2019, and she applied for details of the vehicle owner allegedly involved in the riots, you know, beating up people. And she was uh, convicted on submitting fake, false information because she was actually doing investigative journalism. Now, she appealed all the way to the court of final appeal, and her conviction was quashed because our CMA thought that if she applied for information on the details of a vehicle, that is transport and traffic regulation information allowed under the relevant law. So she did not submit a false statement and the conviction was quashed. And our courts have been ruling against the government practically on every issue relating to LGBT rights and Beijing has not intervened. We continue to have 11 overseas judges distinguished jurors serving on our court of final appeal, and they continue to make rulings drawing on European Convention of Human Rights jurisprudence. So all these are very strong evidence that we, are, we continue to plug into the world's common law system, and we share a lot of the values of the rest of the world, although we are duty-bound to support our sovereignty, our country's sovereignty, security. To turn back to the other question, because you brought up something I wanted to ask about and hadn't gotten to yet, but you dove in Hong Kong membership in a variety of international institutions and organizations. And I looked it up and yeah, I think you're right. I think it's something like 130 some 
international institutions, at least by my count, either on its own in organizations that don't require sovereignty as a standard of, of membership or as a subnational unit of China and other institutions. You know, Hong Kong still has its own currency. It still has its own monetary authority. As you said, it sets its own trade policy as well. Do you think that there'd be any circumstance under which Hong Kong might reconsider its direct participation in international institutions, given the return to sovereignty under China? I think we greatly treasure our participation in all these international organizations. In fact, that's our unique advantage relative other Chinese cities. In terms of aggregate GDP, we are bound to be overtaken by Shenzhen, Guangzhou. You know, we have a population of 7.2 million. We have a very small geographical area. We can't compete with all these mainland cities. A lot of people like to compare us with Singapore. In fact, a lot of our rival cities are from the Greater Bay Area. And our unique advantage over that is our international connectivity. So we highly treasure that. Our people learn a lot from taking part in these organizations. And I think they also find us useful. Uh, all the organizations you refer to, they are organizations that allow non-state participations. You know, we are there as a non-state parties. And our participation was the subject of discussion before 1997 under the Sino-British Joint Liaison Group. They have a subgroup on IROs, International Rights and Obligations. So our participation, continued participation after 1997, was something agreed by both China and UK, considered to be in the long-term benefit of Hong Kong. So I think we should support that. And Britain should also support that because they have a big, they play a big part persuading China to allow us to do that. Let me see. This this question may seem a little unfair to you, but I want to ask it anyway. And we'll just see, see. I'm just curious as to your reaction. So the things that you just described about the value of Hong Kong being in these various institutions that don't require statehood, one could make the same argument about Taiwan. And I know this is not supposed to be a podcast about Taiwan or anything, but because of the comparative nature, I was just curious if you think the same principle could be applied to non-state institutions and consider Taiwan's membership, whether it was called Chinese Taipei or some other formula, because this is obviously something that, that folks in Taipei have pushed a lot and they've faced a lot of pushback. Now, as I mentioned earlier, our participation in all these organizations was agreed by China and Britain under working groups trying to ensure a seamless transition before 1997. The way we participate, our title, everything was agreed, including APEC. We were allowed to join APEC, so-called, at that time, what the other countries call the three Chinas, you know, China took part as China, Hong Kong took part as Hong Kong, China, and Taiwan took part as Chinese Taipei. If these political issues could be resolved, if Taiwan would agree to participate as Taiwan, China, maybe they would be able to take part. You know? In all these organizations, Taiwan would run into the same political problems, which is beyond the competence of Hong Kong. 
Right. Let me ask one final question here. And I really appreciate you talking about all these different topics. The, the last is about the United States and our policies towards Hong Kong. As I mentioned at the top of the program, the, the U.S. is, you know, has sanctions against current and former Hong Kong officials. Are the policies basically frozen based on what uh, the U.S.'s view of what happened in 2019 and 2020 and, and the trials since? What do you think is, would be the most productive approach of the United States towards Hong Kong, what type of relationship would you like to see emerge in the coming years? No, first of all, there is a very vibrant trade and economic relationship between U.S. and Hong Kong. U.S. enjoys a very large trade surplus with Hong Kong. I know some financial actors are somewhat anxious, and we understand the nature of financial services. Money can flow in and out very quickly but not so in the case of traded goods or manufacturing, leveraging both Hong Kong as a port, as a logistic support base, and on China. Uh, the governor of California came recently. You know, we are a great importer of wine, oranges, fruits, beef, so all sorts from California. So I think we should ensure all this trade and economic relationship should not be affected by the larger geopolitical issues. And at MCHAM, I met an American manufacturer uh, teaming up with a Hong Kong industrialist who has a plant in Dongguan. And he said even during the pandemic, he was very well looked after in Dongguan. He was very happy with his manufacturing plants in Dongguan. I think this sort of win-win economic and trade partnership should go on. Secondly, you know, uh, with regard to our two countries, you know, as we know, U.S. and China had vast ideological and cultural differences. There is a geopolitical competition, but we should also do relationship management. And a lot of our officials have been sanctioned. And you, ha if you have been sanctioned, you would not be very happy to meet with U.S. officials who is party to the sanctions. But other than that, I, I think we should do more relationship management. After all, Hong Kong has been, actually the city, the community, has been very pro-U.S. until U.S. turned against Hong Kong and imposed sanctions on us and through the 2019 Human Rights and Democracy Act and the 2020 Autonomy Act took away a lot of the separate status and treatment for Hong Kong. So we welcome the visit of more even officials, not former officials, think tank leaders, academic like you to continue the dialogue. I hope we could do contribute in our own way to a better relationship management. Ms. Ip, this has been extremely valuable and an important conversation. I think Americans need to put Hong Kong back on their radar screen and pay attention to what's going on in the city. And listen to all the different voices that are in Hong Kong and, and in Hong Kongers who are outside the SAR at the moment. You are a very important voice for Hong Kong. You've been so for many years. And for that, I'm extremely grateful for you sharing your time with us. And I look forward to future opportunities to have the kind of dialogue uh, that you just encouraged. It's my pleasure. Very nice chatting with you again, Scott. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to China Field Notes. 
Stay up to date with our latest releases by following us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to great content. Until next time.